Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. First up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. What are the latest glad tidings from the British economy? <laughs> They're not so glad. Um, GDP figures, uh, growth uh, figures for February, um, were at the beginning of the week. The economy grew by a pretty anemic 0.1%. That might be downgraded, actually. Um, down from 0.8% growth in January and well below what every expert was forecasting, including the OBR. So um, then inflation figures for March were at midweek, 7%, up from 62 basically adding to fears that we are now seeing what this podcast has been predicting for a while, which is stagflation. And the problem with that is that Basically, classic Keynesian economics or mm-hmm. modern monetary theory solutions are also limited because inflation was high. Yeah, yeah. If you cast your mind back to the discussions we were having around austerity, the question was always why aren't they borrowing more because you know interest rates are so low and inflation is so low. When you have stag- you know, stagnation and inflation, what happens is that basically the levers you can pull, you, you pull them one way for one thing and the other for the other thing. So it leaves uh, government in a, a really sticky wicket. I mean, a lot of the factors affecting this are global. Mm. But a lot of the, the things that could boost recovery are problems specific to the UK. You know, the restriction of labour um, past post-Brexit being the biggest, biggest one, really. Uh, construction actually shrunk um, in the last month. That is not the sign of a recovering economy. It's looking quite bleak. Uh, well, here to talk about Brexit is Naomi Smith, Chief Executive <laughs> Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. <laughs> One day I'll get asked about something else. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's all that you talk about. Um, You did an event with The Independent last week exploring the government's pursuit of Brexit opportunities. Um, What did you find out? Uh, That there aren't any. Uh, is, it there, um, is it that there aren't any? Is it that there are some, but they're not being You needed explored? an event for that. I mean, presumably you had, to hi- you had to hire a room. So, you know, there must have been more to it than that. I mean, when I talk about this topic, you've got to talk about net benefits, right? Oh, I did eight five-mile runs this month, but I increased my calorie consumption by... A thousand calories a day, therefore, I am now fatter and less fit than I was at the start of the month. Mm. You've got to talk about net benefits. So, any time there is anything that gets sort of touted as, and it's usually a potential, by the way, rather than an actual realised banked win, it's often offset by more costs elsewhere. So, when you're talking about any kind of trade deal, it either has an incredibly minimal impact on UK GDP to echo the the stuff that Alex was talking about at the top of the show, uh, but causes huge harm to certain sectors of the UK economy or means that you have to uh, lower your standards. So when we're talking about the Australia Free Trade Agreement, for instance, um, our ministers actually had to row back on some of their climate commitments in order to secure that deal. Anand Menon was on the panel with me. He talked about some, again, potential benefits in the area of financial services. But again, those didn't sound like net benefits to me when we look at the number of jobs that have already left uh, London to go to other financial capitals in Europe. So 
um, I'm afraid Jacob Rees-Mogg has got a pretty tough gig because <laughs> uh, when it comes to net benefits, it, nobody is able to pull any out of the bag. I'm sure he'll find some. He'll conjure some up. Um, our returning guest this week, he came in during the Brexit wars, is the Labour and Cooperative MP for Leeds Northwest and Shadow Minister for Nature, Water and Flooding. Alex Sobel, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a bit disturbed it's no longer called Romaniacs. That means you are no longer Romaniacs. If Naomi's not a Romaniac, then we're in trouble. <laughs> she, she lobbied hard for the name to stay the same. We're, de- we're, de- we're, we're definitely Romaniacs. We just didn't want people to look pityingly on us and go, do you know that it's over? <laughs> so we decided to go for lean into the exasperation. Okay. In West Yorkshire news, uh, Imran Ahmed Khan, the Tory MP for Wakefield, has been found guilty of sexually assaulting a teenage boy. He's been expelled from the party but hasn't yet resigned. If he does resign and there's a by-election, it will be in a seat won from Labour by the Tories in 2019. Um, the Red Wall you've been hearing so much about. I mean, do you think that would be, the bit of, of all the by-elections we've had so far, the really big test? I, th- I think by-elections do stand on their own in many ways. Um I think that there will be, because of the absolutely difficult scenario surrounding this, we've got a really, you know, victim who's now in his 20s, but at the time was 15, uh, that that will that will that will sort of surround the the by-election. You know, we have had previous by-elections in Yorkshire, which were surrounded by tragedy. Um, So I think that 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 will have an effect. But, you know, on the surface of it, it is a straight fight between Labour and the Conservatives. It's the sort of seat where if the Conservatives want to carry on having an overall majority, they need to win it. But equally, if we want to have an overall majority, we need to win it. Mm. So it is it is a seat that both I think we'll see so many resources going in from from ourselves and from the Conservatives. The thing is, is that Imran Ahmed Khan is not making it any easier for the Conservative Party. He said he's going to appeal the verdict, which is, you know, unbelievable quite frankly and then you know let's see what the tariff is if the tariff's less than 12 months which it shouldn't be but it might be then we're gonna have to have a recall election so it might be a very drawn out process um with a lot of focus on it and national and local focus on it so it is going to be probably different to anything we've had yes And, and he's not the only person who remains an mp despite a criminal conviction do you think the parliamentary rules work you know, in this, the, the idea that you have to wait and you have to wait for an appeal and it's really up to them whether they resign or not. I mean, is there a case that if you are found guilty of a criminal offence, you shouldn't be allowed to be an MP with or without the whip? I, th- I think there is definitely a case to look again at the Standards Committee and their powers and how, how it operates and potentially how recall petitions are triggered. I think the recall um, legislation is quite weak. Um, but we have to be careful that we're not, you know, just triggering recalls left, right and centre. So, you know, there the does need to be some balance. And I mean, criminal convictions are taken very seriously and they are legislated for. But then it's just this issue of the appeal. Um, there's absolutely no reason why I'd want to see a change that people can't appeal their sentence because that's part of our criminal justice system. This week on the show, congratulations to Boris Johnson, who has made history by becoming the first sitting Prime Minister to have been found to have broken the law. He's been fined for breaches of Covid rules along with Carrie Johnson and Rishi Sunak. We'll look at how he's holding on regardless and the not unrelated Sunak implosion. 
Plus, we're discussing energy and the environment with Alex Sobel. And France is preparing for its second head-to-head contest between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're asking the panel about their first political memories. All that and more in today's show after a word from Alex Andreu. Oh God, we do love to be beside the seaside. The weather's improving, so we're greasing up our old bathing suits for a trip to the Old Market Theatre in Hove on Wednesday, 8th of June. Our South Coast debut will be hosted by Dorian with Ian, Ros and me in what will be our third show of the Is This Finally It for Boris Johnson tour. Tickets are on sale now and Patreons, don't forget you've got a special discount for our live shows, so check it out if you are ready supporters and sign up if you don't. We'll see you there. Thanks, Alex. First this week, Boris Johnson, Kerry Johnson and Rishi Sunak have all been fined in the second round of fixed penalty notices for breaches of COVID rules at Downing Street. In a magnificent display of sincerity and spontaneity, <laughs> cabinet ministers rallied around to say that it was right that the two most powerful men in the land had apologised and now they should get on with the job of running the country, which they do so exceptionally well. Um, Naomi, we've been here before, but let's be honest. Um, is there likely to be a vote of no confidence? Is the 1922 committee's mailbox bulging? <laughs> well, as we're recording, 359 out of 360 Conservative MPs have not called for any of their resignations. Um, and every member of the cabinet has backed Johnson one way or another, though some uh, in much more coded and half-hearted ways than others. Look, the Met released it this week during recess, meaning that lots of MPs are away, they're distracted, they're having some family time or catching up with constituency work and, importantly, unable to wind each other up in the tea rooms of Parliament. The line about not not, not now, not during a war, um, is being demolished left, right and centre because, uh, well, frankly, because of all of the prime ministers that have been removed and also because of the fact that France is managing to have a leadership election and the fact that the government was going to recall Parliament over potential chemical weapons use in Mariupol this week and now can't because it doesn't want to face a no-confidence vote. So he's not actually able to lead during this crisis. It's it's a nonsense. However, the public anger is definitely very real. I'm sure Alex will tell us that that his inbox is full of people condemning uh, what Johnson and Sunak have done. And all of the polling suggests that voters are not on the side of the mealy-mouthed Conservative MPs. Uh, And a majority want both Sunak and Johnson to resign. Um, And so if listeners haven't yet signed the best written petition, emailed their MP using our HeyMP tool, do get on the B4B Twitter and follow all the links and do it because it's important. But to, to, to answer your question directly, As we're recording, it is not obvious that the 1922 uh, letters are going to be sufficient to do it right now. You mentioned one. Who's the Lone Ranger then? You you teased us with 359 out of 360. Is his name Nigel? Nigel Mills. Mills, that's right. Yeah, Nigel Mills. Um, Bit of a a lone wolf at the moment, although some non-MPs like Ruth Davidson have, of course, also called for his resignation. He's made an interesting appeal to his colleagues, though, because I thought what he said was very, very interesting. So what he said was colleagues need to think about what's coming down the line, even if they're not 
condemning it yeah. for tactical reasons yeah. because he's had a fine for really the smallest, the most e- sort of the smallest mm-hmm. event. So the idea there's not fines coming for cheese right, and right. wine or bring your own booze yeah. is this quite is the fanciful. cake. This is for the cake ambush. Yeah, this is the That's cake right. ambush. Um, so Nigel Mills is real. He's not just like a Tory name generator. No. <laughs> okay. That's... No, yeah, no, he's I serving on the backbench business committee and he's very real. Ah. He's also very unsurprising that he's put a letter in. Um, Greater Manchester MPs are particularly well known for their dislike of Boris Johnson. Um, <laughs> Uh, including the one that is chair of the 1922 committee. I think the things that people have forgotten, which I think now really has to be come out, is the full Sue Gray report. So we yeah. are part of the Sue Gray report. So not uh, so fixed panel notes is one thing, because people will see that the Prime Minister's got fixed panel notes, but nothing's reading the whole Sue Gray report. And particularly people who lost loved ones during COVID will be absolutely disgusted I imagine yeah. I've not seen, of course, what's going on. And, and I have to thank Naomi for my inbox absolutely bulging with emails from people. But I imagine that I'm getting 10% what Tory MPs are getting. So people know. That's right, yeah. We, we, we do analyse it and it is Tory MPs getting the majority of it. And Alex, you're, well, both Alexes, you're, you're, you're completely right. So the longer these guys hang around, the more they're going to toxify the Conservative Party brand mm. and help hurt themselves at the next election and you know particularly in areas like the northwest where labor are gaining huge ground on the sue gray thing my only hesitation is that i think this is the moment i think it's now there will probably be more fines issued and yes the sue gray report will finally be published um and, uh, you know, as, as received wisdom has it, that will be around culture and bad culture being set at the top and cascading down, blah, 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 but won't necessarily point the finger at anybody in particular. But I don't think that there will be the anger that there is right now with this first revelation that the lawmakers are lawbreakers. The press pack are on it now because there's the hint of a smell of blood. Uh, and so if people don't put immense pressure on their Conservative MPs to call a confidence vote now, it's it's not going to happen. I, I, I fear that we'll get into this cycle that we've had so many times with other scandals in the past where it's 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 like that atrophy and you're just you know the, the erosion of public trust uh in our body politic just gets to the stage where people are switched off from it and 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 hearing it less but Alex Sobel is completely right that the the bereaved families are incandescent about it you know my own father died having spent months alone and me not able to see and touch him because I stuck to the rules most other people around the country did too, and that anger is there, and it's now. So please, please, please don't wait for the Sue Gray report. Get in touch with your MP now. Put the pressure on. Go and visit them at a constituency surgery. Sign petitions. Amplify everybody doing good work in this space. Um, Alex Sobel, um, Ukraine is maybe the only area where Johnson is performing well at the moment. He was welcomed with open arms in in Kiev over the weekend because of the UK's um, military aid and sanctions on Russia. Do you find the way that his defenders keep bringing it up, apart from being historically inaccurate, because, you know, we literally replaced PMs in world wars. I mean, does that does that sort of add another layer of grubbiness to it, that using this kind of uh, appalling crisis as as a sort of reason to get out of it? I mean, it's re- I think it's really odd. For a start, who's going to lead the country that isn't going to support Ukraine 
in a really fulsome way, in the fullest possible way. I mean, and I, I could then now list 10 things that Boris Johnson isn't doing to support Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm pursuing this thing that, that there's a number of Russian companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. The government could have delisted them. You know, they could have put emergency legislation to list them. So Rosneft, it's one of the, you know, is, on the, is listed on the London Stock Exchange. It's absolutely ridiculous. So there's a whole load of things they could have done. So one, you know, let's 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 keep scrutinising his leadership over this. Um, and the second thing is there are a number of different crises which are falling on the top of, of people's heads domestically, mm. which he's absolutely failing on. And then there's the whole thing about there's a complete lack of moral compass. So the discussion we're having about letters isn't because what he did was legally and morally wrong. It's because the the Tory MPs don't feel that public sentiment's quite at the place it was a couple of months ago when more letters were going in. So the, the Tories have no moral bottom line, either in the leadership or in the parliamentary party. It is all just public reaction. Where is the, the bottom of the Tories' moral compass? I mean, how low can he go? That's the question. I, I'm not sure how far down. Watch me, he says. <laughs> um, Ale- Alessandro, is the simple truth that, that he's being saved by the uselessness of his rivals and that war or no war, if there was an obvious replacement, then he'd be out. We'd be getting on to one of those formerly <laughs> likely replacements. I can't, I mean, other than the very last leadership election, I can't think of one where the replacement was that obvious. So I don't think that's it. I think, you know, every time he's in trouble, he holds these events where he talks to all the MPs. And I think the calculation being advanced at those events very, very cynically and nakedly is this. We have a majority of 80. It is only us that can blow ourselves up. They can't touch us. Unless you move, we are completely impervious. And it may be immoral and it may be short-sighted, but it is, the calculation itself is right. It's only Conservative MPs that can blow him up at this point. The only thing I think that will change that calculation is if Conservative MPs go back to the constituencies now and begin to campaign for the local election and they get back a much more strong reaction than they expected, if they get spanked in the local elections, if the fines keep coming, if the Sue Gray report contains a particularly gruesome bit of information like the suitcases full of wine, all these things can move the dial a little bit. But ultimately, it will have to come down to them seeing Johnson as a dead man walking. Because then the question they will ask is, why am I sacrificing my future prospects to extend his career by what? Two months? Yeah, six yeah. months? So when it when it moves on to that, I think the letters will flood in. Um, Naomi, Sunak's ratings are almost as low as Johnson's. Um, there's been rumours that he may quit politics altogether, uh, resign himself to a life of unimaginable wealth and comfort. <laughs> Um, this all sort of started with the spring statement. It um, has obviously got very hairy um, because of his wife's um, non-DOM tax arrangements, um, his own um, US green card, all this stuff that's come out. Are his leadership hopes dead and buried, do you think? I mean, we've, we're always trying to write off Johnson and he keeps refusing to be written off. So is there, <laughs> is there a comeback path for Sunak or, or, or was there this sort of like rather fragile kind of glow around him and now that that's gone... It's not coming back. I mean, of course, his leadership hopes should be dead and buried. 
Um, and of course, he doesn't need to work, let alone in politics, where there's an inevitable level of scrutiny of your family and private life that doesn't exist to the same extent in other roles. So, you know, and I think he could have turned it around uh, at some future point if he'd resigned over the fine, uh, making himself look much more principled than his boss, putting Johnson mm. in the shit for not doing the same. But while previously popular with voters and some party members and, and with voters, it was because he was giving them free cash and free dinners out and things like that. He never really had, I mean, what do we call them? Sunakers? Sunakites? Like he did have... Sunakists? <laughs> Sunakids. <laughs> Sunakamaniacs? <laughs> Listeners, Alex Sobel is shaking his head vigorously at all those suggestions. Rishi Files? <laughs> I don't know, man. That's why, that's why there aren't any, because they can't agree exactly. on a, a name. Because there's just no good name. If the brand yeah. had been there, yeah. Um, but he didn't have them in the parliamentary party. He didn't have that cabal of conservative MPs ready and waiting to back his leadership run. And so for now, at least, that looks like an almost impossible task for him to build. Um, Alex Sobel, uh, Sunak seemed to believe that a Labour-supporting civil servant um, leaked his wife's non-dom status. Um, it was dubbed Red Throat. Um, now, I mean, there is a possibility he might have some enemies inside the Tory party. Um, is, I mean, is, does that sort of speak to his overall naivety and certainly his allies, whoever they are, doing the briefing? The, the first, your first response to being caught out on something like this is to try and root out the red mole and sort of blame the leaker. It does sound ludicrous. It does sound ludicrous, doesn't it? You know, I mean, I think we also need to remember that Richard has had a very rapid rise to where he is. You know, he was, I mean, George Osborne similarly wasn't, hadn't been an MP for very long, but he only really became Chancellor because um, he was willing for um, Dominic Cummings to tell him who he couldn't or couldn't employ when Sajid Javid wasn't willing. Mm. And so his rise was because he was acquiescent. And then so now, obviously, that doesn't sound like a, somebody who's got leadership potential. Then with all of the other multiple scandals surrounding him, you know, he's deeply engrossed in Partygate, non-dom status, green card gate. You know, we could just spend all day talking about um, clouds surrounding Rishi Sunak. You know, I do think it's, it's dead in the water. I'd be willing to put my hand on my heart and say Rishi Sunak is never going to be leader of the Conservative Party. Um, because there are enough other more experienced politicians knocking about, although none of them are, you know, got their head above the parapet at this stage. But that's probably a good thing because somebody who may be in their interest to knock your head below the parapet again may release something they know about you to the press. Do you think Sajid Javid could come back into number 11 then? I mean, his, his dad was a bus driver. So uh, anything's possible. So um, he, ne- he never talks about it. <laughs> no, he never, famously never talks about it. I think that possibly, I think that Boris Johnson might appoint somebody if, if um, Sunak does go. He perceives somebody who isn't a threat to him as leader. That's, that's what mm. I would... Mm. I'm not sure that's Javid. Hasn't Javid alleg- been alleged to be a non-dom or having had been a non-dom he, as well? He wa- yeah, he was yeah, back right, in the noughties, right. yeah. So you don't have to be a, a non-dom to be Chancellor, but it, it kind of helps, right? It certainly helps because <laughs> it shows that you're good with money. But also, like, so you could have Javid back into number 11. And hey, Hancock's been more than fawning of Johnson since his resignation. They could get the whole band back together. <laughs> Javid back to Chancellor, oh, Hancock back Lord. to hell. Good grief. Um, 
Alex, Andreu, there is a chasm between the uh, sort of beloved super Rishi of 2020 to 21 um, and the walking disaster that he's been in recent weeks. Do you think he's lost it or was he just wildly overrated all along for the simple you know, reason that he was giving away all this money um, despite his better instincts? Well, I think both of those things are true. He was he was overrated. He was overpromoted, actually. And he has lost his sheen. But the biggest factor really is that it's easy to be popular when you're just, you know, handing out money like confetti. Um, he just joins a long list of politicians whose metal is tested by having to make choices. When you can just give money to everyone, you don't have to make a choice. You're Mr. Popular, of course. Mm. And which potential future leader do you think is going to be benefiting from from Sunak's collapse? Have, has the kind of because for ages we were talking about it's you know Sunak and Truss were obviously the two leading contenders. Mm. Truss isn't that impressive. I mean, she hasn't you know screwed I, and, up and I badly. Think Truss but, resembles him. She's too right. managerial. So, so I don't think she'll benefit. So is anybody kind of yeah rising? I, I, I think Wallace, Mordaunt, Elwood, Tugendhat. So basically, because of the current situation, the former military people um, project the opposite qualities of both Sunak and Johnson. So they they, they project discipline, selflessness, sort of thrift, um, respect for the rules. Uh, I'm not saying that they are those things necessarily. I'm just saying that's what they project. And I think they will be the big beneficiaries of that. Ben Wallace, interesting. Hunt, Hunt will still have his hat in the ring, won't he? Hunt. I mean, he's got yeah. the same sort of support base as some of the others, so it depends whether he's out in front of more than Tugendhat and Elwood. Only one of those four will stand. Oh, yes, yeah. they, they yeah, are yeah. very much alternatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we, we haven't had a bald prime minister since Clement Attlee, so uh, that would... Uh, and, the you know, the, the revised wisdom in politics is... Uh, I'm afraid to say that you know that they don't they don't go down well with the voters. But uh, I would feel seen, though. I would feel <laughs> I feel represented. Listen, Penny Morden, Penny Morden would shave her head if it get her there. <laughs> Next up, fuel bills are soaring. The invasion of Ukraine has called into question our reliance on sordid regimes to supply fossil fuels. And Just Stop Oil protesters have been blockading terminals in a last-ditch attempt to force the government to stop new oil licences. So it's a good time to talk about the future of energy policy. Um, Alex Sobel, you're Shadow Minister for Nature, Water and Flooding. Flooding is only going to get worse as climate change intensifies. And there was a kind of bad um, wave of floods just before the first lockdown. Has the government improved flood defences since the last wave, or is that another casualty of COVID, just another thing that, that didn't get done? We've had a long programme of hard flood defences, so-called flood alleviation schemes. And in many places that are vulnerable to flooding, those schemes have either been completed or part completed. The big, my big criticism is we also need to think about natural flood management. So what are we doing to stop the water from entering the river in the first place in the big flood events? What are we doing to stop houses being built on floodplains? What are we doing to ensure that um, that uh, moors and fields um, have an element of renaturing, which will mm. capture the water? And the government aren't investing in that. And there's a lot of lip service along those lines, but very little action. And actually, in the long term, those solutions will be the ones that save us in many places for non-tidal flooding. Tidal flooding is different and more difficult with rising sea levels. But for river flooding, those, right. those are the long-term solutions and the government aren't investing in it. 
Um, why is Labour calling for injunctions to block Just Stop Oil protests? I mean, they could say nothing, but instead they're talking about, you know, inconvenienced motorists and going in quite hard on these protesters. Why? I mean, the, there are emergency workers and others, you know, so if you're in an ambulance and you're blocked from going to hospital, that's obviously got really serious um, repercussions or a fire engine, you know, going to fire... Um, enough, but these are these are blocking yeah. oil terminals. So they're not actually blocking yeah. traffic. So, I mean, that that's the argument that that I've heard that we need to think about protecting emergency and blue light services. So, you know, and that that's something we need to think about. I think more broadly, we're, we're in a really funny position at the moment where um, we've got the police crime and sentencing, but where where the government want to give the police more powers, quite often where the police aren't looking for those powers. Um, and um, we obviously voted against that in Parliament a number of times. There the probably are some, some you know, localised reasons about why, why we support injunctions at these points. Um, it might be to do with the uh, energy crisis as well, you know, in the short term, um, you know, what's going on, particularly with, 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 you know, the lack of Russian imports and the sanctions. So the, I think there's probably geopolitical reasons here. Well, I spent some time with some of these young activists for a feature the, the other week, and, and they're obviously acting out of despair with politicians, the sense that, that really nothing is, is changing, certainly not, not fast enough. Um, and presumably a Labour government wants to, would want to be trusted on the climate crisis. Um, and yeah. so that's, that's what I wonder whether coming out against... I mean, this is obviously civil resistance. This isn't just a demo. There is some inconvenience. That's kind of the point. But I mean, if one part of the Labour Party is saying that, what else is being done to convince people for whom climate change is the issue that, you know, that, that they've got their interests in, in mind? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Insulate Britain, their demand is there's adequate insulation. You know, we've got to a point where people are protesting over something really basic. Labour policy, as you know, that will fund 28 billion every single year in climate adaptation, climate mitigation, carbon reduction. That's the sort of scale of um, ambition that these protesters want to see. And so if we're in government, my view might be wrong when we get there, is that the, the protesters won't be protesting on the, th definitely not on things they're protesting now because we're going to be doing them. And so hopefully we won't see those protests because there won't be a need to protest. Oh, we shall see. Oh, hopefully, hopefully we will see. Um, Naomi, Keir Starmer's committing to expanding nuclear energy, which is obviously, that's a big thumbs up for me. Um, Germany's sort of hooked on Russian oil and gas, um, partly because it wound down its nuclear programme. Um, is the case for nuclear stronger than it's been for a long time, now that we've got geopolitical as well as environmental reasons for wanting to uh, wean ourselves off fossil fuels, perhaps faster than we'd imagined? Yeah, from a security perspective, yes. Um, from a cost perspective, no. And from a time perspective, perhaps not as well, because mm. they take such a long, long, long time to build. They can be fairly carbon intensive in so doing. Environmentally, the jury's split. You know, it's nice and clean and green till it goes wrong. Mm. I mean, why are the SNP mm. uh, and, and the Greens so opposed? Of course, if it goes wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, so S&P, oh, they don't tend to go with that line. As I understand it, they're largely anti from a cost perspective. Right. Um, so like uh, in 2016, Hinkley Point C nuclear power plant received a contract for a different strike price of, I think it was £92.50 per megawatt power. Um, and that's increased about 25% since then. Um, and the S&P will say things like, you know, their analysis shows that, you know, in, in 2030, Hinkley could add about £40 a year to a consumer's bill, whereas equivalent offshore wind would reduce bills by £8 a year. Um, so, you know, growth in renewables, storage, hydrogen, etc., they say are, are a more secure energy base for, for Scotland's future needs and aligning to their net zero objectives. Green Party members, I think, are more split than you imagine, but their official party policy is anti for the same reasons as the SNP plus they do cite the safety of nuclear plants requiring cooling water and obviously you know therefore quite large water usage uh, that but climate change posing a safety hazard because of extreme weather events and rising sea levels uh, they they say will increasingly render nuclear power plants very vulnerable Alex, does that, um, Alex Sobel, does does that come up in your brief then? If we're talking about the danger of these things flooding, or indeed any kind of energy manufacture, I mean, it's not something that I've come into contact with directly, um, and the 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 risks around flooding uh, are aren't great. I mean, there are some risks around tidal waters, but the technology has has moved on. I mean. We obviously have to think about what happened at Fukushima, but we're not at risk of the same things at risk of in Japan. You know, we're not an earthquake zone. We're not a tidal wave zone. Alex, Andre, we're seeing governments across Europe subsidising energy costs in different ways. Um, Is the UK's refusal to do so a Brexit thing or a Tory thing? Oh, is there is there a difference post the great <laughs> the great purge of twenty nineteen? But is but is, I don't know. is um, there any reason, or are I mean, are these are these European countries doing it because they're in the EU? Well, look, are they doing it because they want to? As I mentioned at the top, the forces pressing are global, but that doesn't mean the governments are powerless. So, if you look at France, for instance, France has gone for a rebate that basically keeps the price steady, and government pays the the slack. Other countries with still um, national utilities are making them absorb the slack. They're saying, Norway power, you're just not going to make a profit this year. You might make a loss. Um, French inflation at the moment is between 3.6 and 4.1, depending on what measure you look for March. So it's about half hours. So these things do work. The reason Sunak hasn't done anything, I... I genuinely think is one of the most cynical political decisions of the last decade. He has the headroom to act. Right. He has chosen to bank it until just before the election. That's what he's doing. He has he has chosen to keep that money in his pocket to make a bigger giveaway just before a general election. That's the cynical ca- but people calculation. Are strugg- people are struggling now. Does does the cynical calculation not allow for the fact that, that people who have been you know, left to freeze, um, would hold it against them? Well, the cynical calculation is because they know that the people who are more of their base may have slightly more fat to absorb the, you know, the uh, price increase. So the, the sort of 
leafy suburb middle classes. Um, and they, they make a calculation on the basis that people are gullible and they have short memories. So a big splash in the, you know, March 2024 budget will go down very well with voters. That's what they've decided to do. They've decided to not help people when they need it. So they have money to spend on bribes in two years time. You, I think. Well, do you remember around 2019, there was maybe a big realignment where suddenly because the, uh, the their voter base was changing, that they were going to be much more um, mindful yeah. of the needs of people with less happened, money. Has it? Hasn't happened. <laughs> big surprise. Alex Sobel, does, does Labour have sort of, I mean, if, if you were in office now, um, what would you be doing about fuel prices? Do you think that, that, that you know, that reforms have to be brought in, um, I mean, to do with the way the fuel industry is structured, to do with perhaps, as we're talking about there, um, you know, kind of making up the making up the extra. Like, obviously, you know, you don't maybe we don't have a full, fully worked out policy here, but th- this could keep happening. Um, what Alexandra said is really interesting. So in Norway, the state owned company are going to have to subsume the rises. Um, if we if we look at Norway, that company extracts gas and it also supplies gas to the Norwegians. So, see, that is not our system. But the people who yeah. extract oil and gas from the North Sea, Shell and BP, have posted record profits because of the price rises of the latter in 2021. And this year, I imagine, will we'll again post even greater record profits. So their prof- combined profits for 2021 were over £20 billion. Now, the only opportunity we have to balance that out is through the tax system, and that's what we suggested a windfall tax and quite a lot of conservative backbench MPs also who agreed with us that it should be a windfall tax because there's no more productive activity by those companies it's just the fact that the the price has gone up Mm, 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 mm. we can utilize that windfall tax to balance out those costs we could also target that at the most fuel poor so you know we don't necessarily have to balance that out with the Rishi Sunaks of this world but we could balance it out with people who are really struggling because what we're seeing is we've got multiple crises in those households because everything's going up. We've got, which we haven't talked about, we've got a current crisis of fertilizer for farmers because of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, we've, you know, we've we've got in some areas water bills are going up by twelve percent, which is in my brief. Other areas not. So it's very it's a postcode lottery how much your water bill's going up. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of these cost pressures are going up. And although interest rates are only 075 percent, that is having an impact. On people's mortgages you know if we see interest rates going to two three four percent we're in the middle of a huge middle class crisis which is the you know the absolute nightmare of any government of whatever strike so it'll look very short-sighted that he hasn't done anything now about these gross profits if we have these multiple crises not just hitting the poorest but the entirety of the middle class as well short-sightedness is perhaps the theme of the yes, show isn't and it? the government <laughs> Finally this week, the first round of the French presidential elections is over and the last round will be a rematch between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. The socialist Jean-Luc Mélenchon came third with 22%, just one point behind Le Pen, while the far, 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 far right candidate Eric Zemmour flamed out at 7%, much to the disappointment of his boosters in the British media. Alex, what was Marine Le Pen's offer and did Zemmour help her seem reasonable? I mean, he seems too much of an egotist for that to be his his aim. <laughs> I think he actually did want to do quite well and replace her. It's it's it may not be his aim, but it's the way of the far right. I, I wrote a piece about ten years ago now, 
about the, repo- the constant repositioning of far-right movements. And what I said was that the far-left uh, basically evolves by mitosis, by splintering until you find the splinter that has the broadest appeal, while the far-right involves by mutation, by constantly changing its offering until the circumstances are right and it kind of grows roots. Um, so... I mean, Le Pen's offering was basically left on economics, right on social issues, far right on immigration. It's the UKIP bucket list. Um, You know, whatever it is that annoys you, whatever your pet hate is, we're going to sort it out and don't worry about how. Um, A cab driver in Athens once told me a thing I will never forget, that populism is the art of promising to everyone that the harshest possible laws will apply to everyone else. And that is basically the Marine Le Pen offering and every populist offering, that we have the solution that will make you king of the castle while basically punishing all all the people you dislike. Nemi, I confidently predicted, and therefore wrongly predicted, (laughs) um, a month ago that Ukraine would you know, we sort of changed the calculus of the election because you had, um, you had Putin, Zemmour and Mélenchon all in their different ways had been relatively pro-Putin compared to, to Macron. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that that wasn't more of a factor? It didn't seem to have been a deterrent to anyone. Oh, I mean, look, I think there's probably about, a, I don't know, one in three chance Le Pen could win. So I, I'm I'm sort of less worried about her winning this time because I think Macron is going to squeak through. But I am terrified of her building up the long term credibility for the next time. Mm. Um, if you remember Mitterrand and Chirac, the only two French presidents to have completed two full terms, hung around for ages as failed presidential candidates before finally winning and building support every time they stood. So she's following a bit of a, a tried and tested route to the presidency. Um, and of course, Macron will be constitutionally ineligible to stand for a third term come 2027. Um, so there's no obvious, serious gladiatorial challenge to her on the horizon after after this this time. And it's yeah, it's it's shocking. But but no. But as to my question, are you surprised that Russia was not more of a more of a factor? That foreign policy doesn't seem to have played the role that many people were predicting that it would. I mean, because she's she's been. Very close uh, to <laughs> I mean, we struggle week after week to to divine what will have cut through in our own I know, country. No, but I'm just, I'm <laughs> just, know, I'm just, let I'm, alone what might have cut I'm through really, in the French I'm election. Really, I'm just very surprised. Well, well, not a lot of people have brought it up. Maybe they don't consider it a strong line of attack. Maybe Macron is actually saving it for these two vital weeks in right, the big yeah, debate yeah, yeah. they have coming up. Because as we have found out from Partygate, issues grow old. Even to people who agree with you and support you, they lose their shine. So maybe this is going to be Macron's big weapon in the debate coming up. Who knows? Um, Alex Sabel, a couple of points difference. This would have actually been a very, very different narrative. Um were you surprised Mélenchon did so well? No. Um, so I think that Macron's support split. And, and, and Tour de Pille in France, the big thing from 2017 was he, he won a lot of borrowed votes. But he didn't acknowledge that. He acted after he won like it was a huge victory. It was the victory of Emmanuel Macron. And, he, and, he, and he's ruled as president, you know, 
like he's got a huge mandate rather than having one off borrowed votes. And people who work in the public services, young people, others who he has effectively mocked and unsupported in public sector pay rise in France are as poor as they are in the UK, but they expected him to deliver for them, just can't just saying they're not going to vote for him again. And what happened was, was that Mélenchon had a message for those people. And they were like, they looked at the polls and they went, what's the best chance of us beating Macron? And that was Mélenchon. And so they might not agree with Mélenchon on, on foreign policy, on international policy, but they thought, I'm going to get a pay rise. He might do something about housing. He might do something around some of the issues that I care about. And he had a sort of message of hope. You know, Macron might, will need to win those votes back, but effectively it's too late. You know, if he was going to win those votes back, he should have done something two years ago. But he didn't. And I think that a lot of this, you know, if Le Pen wins, then we'll be woe betide us. But a lot of the fault rests on Macron's shoulders. And then we're going to all have to live not just the French people with the nightmare of um, Le Pen as the president of France. And I don't think it's beyond unimaginable that she will win. Macron Macron cannot go into these debates saying, you've got to vote for me because of how I've acted towards Russia. He's not going to win like that. Um, he needs to have a, a an offer to the French working and middle class, particularly in the public services, that he's going to act differently and promise them something that means that they see... A material reason to vote for him and his lack of credibility is such that even that might not be enough the socialist parties and hidalgo got just 1.8 percent and the socialist party of course used to um be one of the parties that ran france what do you make of that the, the sort of total collapse at least on a leadership level weirdly not on a kind of um on a local parliamentary level of the center left and center right I mean, it, it makes pasoccification yeah. seem it, like small beer. It, it does and it doesn't. You know, she won. She won the mayor of Paris with with a very strong mandate. The the PS have done okay in the in the French uh, National Assembly elections, and I think they will again. This is because of the nature of the French presidential race. It is effectively a two horse race, and you either mm. vote for one of the two horses or you back a third horse hoping they might overtake the second horse, and that is exactly what's happened. If it's possible to have a worse system than FPTP, then I think that French presidential election, <laughs> along with the US uh, presidential college, you know, win that prize. They really need to think about reform, particularly if you're, go- you're the outgoing president, you can say you're going to reform it because you're not going to rerun. They need yeah. to reform that presidential election system. Because you're right, because if you look at the National Assembly results, it seems like a, it seems like a much more normal... <laughs> country a much more normal <laughs> system yeah i mean look at progress as well progressors vote absolutely plunged through the floor mm. and um you know i've not seen the analysis of where those votes went um, and she was polling progress was polling neck and neck yeah with marine le pen like three months ago yeah. remember when we we're talking about it yep. and and Sita had been announced and she was like on 20 21 neck and neck so i don't i have no idea what happened there it was a massive collapse it's, it's, it's because they look at who can win, get to the runoff. Yeah. And if yeah. you if people think, no, you can't, then your votes and your confidence goes and your vote collapses. Mm. The French electorate understand how their system works and their playing yeah. system. I suppose that is, a, a, is a, therefore a slightly more optimistic way to read it because another way to read it is, of course, to think that about, you know, sort of a good 40% of, 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 of the French uh, are sort of pro-fascist. 
Um, but like you said, it's a lot of them, they're responding to the sort of perverse incentives of the system and not signing up to everything. Yeah, yeah. And the hatred of Macron. <laughs> so yeah. the system and the hatred of Macron, those two things have come into play. I mean, it's a very good thing they're term limited in France. A third presidential on Macron would be an absolute disaster. You know, but somebody needs to start raising their profile who can offer something to the majority of the country, a hopeful vision, and deliver it. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Naomi, what do you have? Christ, there's so many, Dorian. <laughs> uh, look, inflation hitting a 30-year high today. Hospitals in England declaring a state of emergency because COVID admissions are so high. COVID deaths are through the roof at the moment as well. The, the terrorist attack on New York yesterday. Um, but the one that I want people to focus on is the elections bill. Haven't talked about it for a while, but it's so important because this government as we know, avoid scrutiny and accountability at every step of the way in any way it can. And it is consolidating power in this enormous power grab. And on the 25th of April, it will be day two of the report stage of the bill in the Lords. And this is the day when they will vote on the independence of the Electoral Commission, which is the uh, elections watchdog in the UK. The Conservative Party don't like them. Uh, they want to take a lot of the power that the Commission has away from it and give it to ministers in the most egregious authoritarian power grab we've seen uh, for a long time, uh, but sadly all of a piece with their other legislation. Um, and so I would uh, ask people to contact any peers they may have details for, uh, get in touch with them, ask them to, to hold firm and defeat the government on this. And I have to say, um, Alex Sobel, if you've got any sway with the Labour whips in the Lords, we lost a couple of votes last week on day one because some Lords went home, Labour peers went home. So we defeated the government on um, an issue around uh, ID cards and then lost other amendments. And we lost them by a smaller amount than the number of uh, Labour peers that, that toddled off to go and have dinner or, or whatever it was they were doing that evening. So really, really vital that, uh, that, that crossbenchers, Lib Dem and Labour peers hold firm and vote the right way on the 25th of April. I'll no lie pressure. down in front of the underground car. <laughs> yeah. Stop them leaving, yeah. Or just go in like, you know, the, those people at the theatre that have little ice creams. And just go with a nice snacks. dinner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Alex Andre. Okay, so I am Denard, um, and I'm going to go for Partygate, all right? Now, <laughs> bear with me, because what I want to, to talk about is a completely different aspect of Partygate that I've seen discussed nowhere. I've seen not a single journalist ask the question, not a single opposition figure put, it, put this point across. Alex, take notes. Um, my work brings me in contact with several small organizations, fewer than 30 staff. The first thing they all did before even the first lockdown was create teams A, B, C, who never came into contact with each other, okay, to ensure that an outbreak didn't cripple them. It's basic risk planning. I don't know a school, a library, a factory that didn't put those 
things in place. How is it possible that Whitehall, the people who were in charge of a pandemic response, did not create staff bubbles and silos that no protocol exists in a pandemic to say, right, you senior person and you senior person cannot be breathing the same the same air that the prime minister was hanging out with the chancellor. Put law breaking to one side, just the risk of the entire government machinery grinding to a halt because of a widespread Mm. outbreak within government was huge. And these people were basically having wine together. And I just don't understand why the risk planning angle is never discussed. You know, doctors and nurses moved into hotels so they wouldn't have to jeopardize either their job or their family. And these people were having tea and cakes. Um, that is actually the one aspect of Partygate that could just be justly be described as under the radar. Alex Sobel. Yeah, in the spring statement, I think it largely went unnoticed that the biggest stealth tax raid was on graduates. So the um, interest rate that graduates pay on their loans is RPI plus 3%, even though base rate is at 0.75, which is still, you know, historical terms, very low. Um, and that means that some students are going to be paying in excess of £3,000 more interest, not of interest, more interest every mm. year on their loan because of the huge hike in, in interest rates. And actually, if you look in the, in the statement... It's the largest single item, I can't remember how many billion it is, in government revenue. So effectively, graduates are being rinsed. It's not enough they're paying £9,000, which is obviously a huge increase in their fees, um, which happened, you know, 10 years ago. They are now having to pay this massive interest. And Rishi Sunak could have absolutely done something about it. Now, I don't know, maybe the Conservatives don't want graduates to vote for them. But it's definitely coming up on my doorsteps where I've got a lot of young professional graduates living. And, you know, admittedly, not many of them look like Conservative voters or or sound like Conservative voters to me. But, you know, if the Conservatives want that vote, which is important in the Mm. long term, then maybe they'll do something about it. But they did quite the opposite. Again, with the short termism. Dorian, what about you? So Zelensky uh, refused to meet German President Frank Walter Steinmeier uh, this week because of his ties to Russia. Um, shared by former chancellors Gerhard Schroeder and to some extent Angela Merkel. Um, And what struck me was not so much the snub, but the fact that Steinmeier sort of anticipated it by admitting that he got it wrong. So at the beginning of the month, he said, my sticking to Nord Stream 2, that was definitely a mistake. We held on to bridges that Russia no longer believed in and of which our partners warned us. We failed to build a common European house. I did not believe Vladimir Putin would embrace his country's complete economic, political and moral ruin for the sake of his imperial madness. Now, this interests me because you can see there are certain people allied to Putin because they like him, because they are... Similarly, they are authoritarians and nativists and he's their kind of guy. And Germany was more of a, more of a puzzle. And I think sometimes when people show these sorts of pictures from the, the noughties of various, uh, you know, various politicians and celebrities with Vladimir Putin as kind of gotchas. And I felt that this statement was, was really like reminded you that there was a mindset 15, 20 years ago. It was like, well, look, let's try this guy. You know, mm, he's, mm. this is a shady uh, character. But let's try and kind of have, you know, these diplomatic ties, these business ties. Let's try to to not 
um, you know, to not isolate yeah, yeah. Russia. And at some point, that sort of became, I think, sort of morally untenable and politically very, very unwise. But now we're seeing, I suppose we're seeing basically why they were wrong to think that, but why they were right to hope for it. Because, of course, what you don't, what we don't want really is extremely isolated, sort of North Koreaized, yeah, yeah. you know, Russia, where there's you know suppressing internal dissent. It's a sort of full-on autocracy. You know, it's shut off from from the West. And I just felt also that that statement not only revealing, but to have a, a high-ranking politician go, you know what, um, I called this wrong. Yeah. And and just it's, to it's add rare. to your point, um, on the day we're recording, which is Wednesday, um, the the arms manufacturer Rheinmetall is preparing to supply apparently 50 Leopard 1 battle tanks to Ukraine. And the coalition of parties in government are sanguine about the arrangement, which would suddenly pushed Germany way up the friends list. I think. I'm just fascinated by the kind of post-Merkel kind mm. of revolution mm. in sort of German politics, particularly around, uh, around the subject of Russia. And that's the show. Thank you to Naomi. Thank you, thank you. Alex Andreu. Grumble, grumble. And our guest, Alex Sobel. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello from me and a big thank you to Susan Nichols, Claire Robinson, Deborah Talbot, Tom Keegan, Janice Plant, Irini M, Ruth Hinton and Virginia. And a big hug from me to Mike Prentice, Darren Harvey, David Pendray, Claire McRae, Peter Carroll, Philip Pring, Shirley Clarkson and Heather Ringrose. And thanks from me to Joan Balance, David Peters, Le Vieux Fart, David Duggan, <laughs> Nick Kelly, Holly Thomas, Alexandra Boyle, Colin Morrell. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandre and Naomi Smith. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for patrons. This week, we're asking the panel to share their first ever political memory, uh, biopic-style epiphanies, <laughs> optional. So, Alex Sabel, do you have a memory where you just thought, where little Alex thought, that's it, mother... I'm going to be an MP one day, or is it just some? Is it just a sort of fragmentary, dreamlike memory of the news? There are things that politicise me. So my earliest memory of going on a protest when I went with my father to protest and support the Gdansk shipyard workers outside Sheffield City Hall, and I was wow. like, you know, why, like, why, why are we here? What are we doing? And my dad, who's from Poland, explained to me and explained to me what a trade union is. And I think that, and that my granddad was a trade unionist in Poland, you know, and I think that sort of stuck stuck with me, you know, that sort of those sort of roots. Although my dad only joined the Labour Party after I did, um, he, you know, we were always in a political household. So that's that's that was that my, a formative memory for me. Oh, how fantastic. Um, Naomi. Oh, again, I grew up in a, a pretty small P political household and latterly a big P actually, but um, 
I remember, I remember being very, very little and uh, my dad was a politics professor, a political science professor. So there was lots of sort of political propagandary things. He'd keep leaflets, he'd keep political mementos and he had a mug and it had a photo of a little girl and her father um, a photograph on the mug and the little girl saying to the, the dad, daddy, what did you do when there were jobs? <laughs> and I remember asking, you know. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what an hour every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>